Hi, this is Mike McNamara, and you're listening to All Marine Radio on your home for it, the one and only All Warrior Radio Network. edition of All Marine Radio, right here on your home for it, the All Warrior Radio Network. Little blurb from the Wall Street Journal. Um, Facebook has stopped removing posts that say COVID-19 was man-made. Man-made? Hmm, that's kind of interesting, isn't it? You mean the source of origin was China. But even Facebook won't say that. Did you see the actor on TV apologizing for calling Taiwan a country? (laughs) Taiwan's not a country because China says it's not. Oh, my God. Did you see him pleading for his professional life now that China owns Hollywood? I, I never, I, I love the China people. I, uh, oh my God, it's nauseating. Oops. Hate when, uh, hate when a fact comes out. It's a sovereign nation, boys and girls. Like it or not. You may not like it, but it's the truth. Oh, that's right. As Americans grovel to their totalitarian financial masters. Disgusting. Um... Yeah, so even in this, even this little piece of news, um, man-made. What does that mean? What does that mean? Oh, that it might have come from the lab in Wuhan, and it might not have all have been a coincidence. Oh my God! You mean we're not going to play the emperor's new clothes? What? 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 Holy shit! The Wall Street Journal little. 
blurb it sent out because I get news alerts from the Wall Street Journal. The reversal reflects a deepening debate over the origins of the pandemic, right? The reversal reflects evidence that has been probably in the hands of the American government for a while that Chinese researchers in November of 2019 were admitted to the hospital complaining of flu-like symptoms. What, 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 what? Oh, my God. So, um, so interesting. Yeah. The truth, so inconvenient, man. So inconvenient sometimes. So, um, so that's the news. But what I want to talk about before the Mensa brothers come on is I just want to set the stage, um, Relative to what we're gonna, the first topic we're going to talk about, and so I, I should do that because they're going to be here in about eight minutes. So let me just here's the headline. Okay, the headline is this: Air Force Inspector General takes over review of fired Space Force commander's speech. All right. So the investigation that the IG, the Air Force IG, is going to conduct has taken over is an investigation of Lieutenant Colonel Matthew Lohmeyer, a Space Force squadron commander who was fired last week after publicly criticizing the Pentagon's diversity push and what he believes is Marxism spreading in the ranks. Now, this is interesting, right? He's got a right to speak his mind, right? He's not insubordinate. He's criticizing a policy, okay? So how does that get you relieved? Is the question. Lieutenant General Stephen Whiting, Whiting, maybe a descendant of somebody from Whiting Air Force Base? Hmm, that would be interesting. Head of the Space Forces Operations Command removed Lohmeyer, commander of the 11th Space Warning Squadron at Buckley Air Force Base in Colorado, from his post on May 14th, according to a Space Force spokesman. The lieutenant colonel was reassigned to an unnamed job. At issue are, com- are comments Lower- Lomar made on the Information Operation podcast while promoting his self-published book, Irresistible Revolution, Marxism's Goal of Conquest, Conquest and the Unmasking of the American Military. At Whiting's direction, Space Operations Command was looking into whether Lohmeyer's comments amounted to, quote, prohibited partisan political activity. Uh oh, dare I say extremism? Or is he just exercising his right of free speech, according to Military.com, which first reported this story? The IG decided to launch its own inquiry due to the complexity and sensitivity of the issue under consideration, as well as potential for Department of the Air Force wide impact. Now, Department of the Air Force is kind of a new term because the Department of the Air Force now encompasses the Space Force and the Air Force. Yeah, much like the Department of the Navy. So anyway, um, Lomar argues the Defense Department's effort to further diversify the force and bring a multitude of experiences and perspectives to the table, as well as similar initiatives in other U.S. institutions, are wrecking civil society. He told Military.com he did not intend to engage in partisan politics and that Buckley's public affairs office and legal counsel said DOD didn't need to review the contents of his book 
before publication. In that, in my opinion, that in and of itself should not have got him relieved. Okay, the book now the number one bestseller among military policy offerings on Amazon claims that federal agencies are quote vessels of various schools of thought that are rooted in Marxism, Marxist ideology, bent on the destruction of American history, the founding philosophy of Western tradition, specifically Judeo-Christian values, and of patriotism and conservative conservatism. The author pointed to a memo from Secretary of Defense Lloyd Austin, the first black man to lead the department. I'm not sure why that's even relevant, right? And why it would be pointed out, right, in the article. Interesting. Urging troops to better understand and denounce white supremacist and other political extremist ideology that advocate for government overthrow, as well as a 70-page Air Force manual for commanders on how to discuss radicalization with their units as examples of leftist ideas that are stamping out American liberties. Black Lives Matters at school, a group pushing to eliminate systemic educational barriers that predominantly affect children of color, is among the people and organizations Lomar defines as Marxist. Marxism is, and then they explain what Marxism is. Right? Lawmakers, and it names a whole series of senators and congressmen, protested Lomar's firing and suggested Congress should address the matter of conservative voices being silenced in this year's defense policy bill. Critics of the Pentagon's crackdown on ideological extremism after the deadly January 6 riots at the U.S. Capitol, where a mob of President Trump supporters stormed the building as lawmakers moved to certify the results of the 2020 presidential election, say the government is targeting conservatives when Black Lives Matter protests are also a problem. Military leaders have tried to dissuade their employees from making that equivalency. Yeah, it's only staring you straight in the face, right? So it's okay for that shit to go on and for federal buildings in Portland to be under siege on a nightly basis. But that And that's not an insurrection, right? But what happened at the Capitol was. Yeah, we, we hate when people connect facts, right? So that's kind of a, a little bit of the background of what we're going to talk about today. So if you write a scholarly piece that takes on the Secretary of Defense and a a defense department that is in some way, shape, or form becoming woke, dare I say, or struggling with how to become woke, but it was just – so if you push back on that intellectually and write a scholarly article and publish something, somebody loses trust and confidence in you. Because you disagree with the policy, right? Were you insubordinate? And then when you add on top of that, that this guy, the base SJA, you know, tells him, yeah, you don't have to submit that for review by the DOD. And he publishes it, and then you relieve him for essentially exercising his right as an American. You don't check all your rights just because you're a member of the United States military. You check some of them. But not your, you know, not your First Amendment, right? Especially to agree in an articulate way with a policy. So that's what we'll be. That's the first question we'll be talking about. But I felt I should kind of go into it a little bit before the geniuses come on, and uh, and we begin to talk about it. So 
With uh, without further ado, the United States Marine Corps Band makes this morning official. <laughs> And this is dedicated to the next segment because, um, I don't know, I've had some people uh, reach out to me and say, uh, hey, uh, this really helped me. And uh, your guys' ability to talk about stuff, you're not mincing words, uh, uh, helped me. And so uh, so this is dedicated to this segment. Here. It helps. <laughs> betraying your whole life if you don't say what you think and you don't say it honestly and bluntly what keeps you awake at night nothing i keep other people awake at night for this campus had prepared him well <clears throat> i'm very confident that thank you very much <clears throat> if this was vodka it'd be a lot better speech <clears throat> but I'm not supposed to glamorize alcohol anymore. So young folks, you ignore what I just said. We just have to execute. And we are executing every day. And Sergeant Major and I are very proud of what you do. 
Doesn't mean we can't get better. We don't. We don't want to make a mistake to learn. We don't want to lose to learn. We cannot lose if we have to go fight. We got to do what these Marines did here 75 years ago: persevere against difficult, challenging conditions and odds, and win. You got to win. Uh, quick check of the weather. It's uh, mostly sunny in 80 in Quantico. It's sunny in 86 at Kent Lejeune. 29 Palms, mostly sunny, 76. Pendleton, clouds in 60. Camp Smith in Hawaii, dark cloudy, 70. Okinawa, dark cloudy, 78. Darwin, dark cloudy, 78. And in Norway, it is partly sunny in 63. In Costa Mesa, it's 61 and mostly cloudy. Looking for a high of 68 today. That covers the weather where Jeff Kenny is, right? So I won't have to ask him about that. But uh, outside of Kansas City, Kansas, Will, how's your weather? Uh, it's uh, 64 and overcast. Uh, yesterday was the first time we saw the sun in 11 days, and we reverted right back to uh, thunderstorms this morning. So uh, we would be building arcs out here, but we can't afford the lumber. So we're just going to hunker down. That boy. That boy. That's financially savvy of you. Tim, McAllen, Texas. Uh, intermittent sunshine high will top out around 98 humidity is very high got it got it and uh jeffrey do you want to give your weather or were you yes cloudy in 59 here (laughs) (laughs) the um all right um i want to uh i sent you guys an article uh let's talk about uh your the first amendment and the military right and um and policy and ultimately of discourse in the military. Um, well, you can go first. What uh, what rights? Uh, what do we surrender? What do we not surrender? And uh, uh, in this, in when we serve, and, uh, and 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 then give us your initial thoughts on 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 this lieutenant colonel's relief. Yeah, obviously, you give up uh, some of your rights. Um, when I think about this, I think of, you know, chain of command and orders, the way the organization works. If you're given an order that's moral, ethical, and legal, then you're bound to follow the order. That's sort of how it works. If you think that it's uh, illegal, there's, you know, very sort of set ways, uh, you come out against that. If you think it's immoral or unethical, uh, I don't think that your First Amendment right is circumscribed in in that case. And, uh, you know, this is interesting to me because uh, in the Austin memo that's quoted in there, uh, it talks about um, finding ways to seek out these organizations that are dedicated to government overthrow. Well, Marxism absolutely is dedicated to the overthrow of the government and uh, several of these organizations to include Black Lives Matter. Uh, you know, these are trained Marxists uh, that have bragged about that in public. And their initial manifestos uh, talk about Marxism being key uh, to their ideology. And, and so to speak out against that, you're actually following the secretary's guidance of finding these organizations that are seeking government overthrow and identifying them. 
the same thing I'll say is, you know, the, there's a quote in there about diversity, that, that we're looking for a multitude of experiences and perspectives, how to bring a multitude of experiences and perspectives to the table. I absolutely, fundamentally, 100% agree with that. Unfortunately, the execution of that is horribly flawed. How, how do we execute diversity in the modern world? Oh, we measure people out. How many look like this? How many look like that? Uh, so the idea that that you're going to increase your diversity, i.e., bring a multitude of experiences and perspectives to the table by recruiting people based on race, creed, color, sex, is to me unbelievably racist, sexist, etc. You're saying that if I bring a certain number of people of this color, I will increase my experiences and perspectives. So you nail every one of that color to have exactly the same experiences, perspectives, and thought process, processes. That's racist. Uh, and so when this lieutenant colonel um, writes a book to point some of that stuff out, I think he's within the realm of uh, identifying something that's potentially unethical and immoral, and the fact that he ran it through the people that you're supposed to run it through, the SJA, et cetera, uh, and now he's been relieved. Um, you know, bizarre world. The, the Air Force has been the most woke of the military services for years and years and years. Um, but uh, interesting. Now they've got themselves in a, in a bit of a pickle and grabbing this thing away from a three-star and bringing it into the headquarters. Uh, I don't think you want to be a fly on the wall of those deliberations in the chief of staff's office. Got it. Jeffrey, thought. Right. Well, we'll mention the... Uh, well, hold the on. And again, start, start with just your take on uh, your First Amendment rights and then and then progress to the issue. Well, I think that uh, it's true that some of our rights are curtailed by being in the military, but um, as long as you maintain you know, good, good order and discipline, you can pretty much say what you want. And, uh, and you can say, and as a matter of fact, in the 80s, um, there's a lot of people who said, hey, this maneuver warfare stuff is bullshit. And they said it openly, right in front of you, like General Gray and everything. This was, this was our thing, man. And uh, people were saying this is bullshit. I mean, I remember this guy, Bolger, who became a big ma maneuver warfare, wrote a book called, wrote an article called, uh, you know, uh, Why Maneuver Warfare is, is, uh, is Debunked. And basically, he went against the, uh, you know, the, the stated new uh, theology, military theology of both the Army and the Marine Corps. And nobody got relieved or fired or anything like that. But this is just exactly, if you read like the history of, uh, of the Soviet Union in the 30s and then Chinese during the 50, during the, well, forever, but main, big time during the Cultural Revolution, the first thing they do is bring people who've said the wrong thing up and they, and they have to confess to a bunch of crimes publicly that uh, they probably didn't do. And then they're, you know, they beg for forgiveness and it's never really given. And you see it all over our culture now. I mean, everything from actors to teachers to, you know, they're, they're, they're being forced to, to, uh, 
to bow down and beg for forgiveness just for having, you know, different thoughts. And so this guy, and I listened to his interview with uh, Tucker Carlson and everything. He's a very measured guy. You know, he's not, uh, he, he's not uh, you know, scatterbrained or anything like that. And very, uh, and, and it's basically, as Will said, it's his duty to point out that this thing that's being foisted on the military is inimical to good order and discipline. Inimical? Yeah, it's against it oh. because it basically it uh, it forces people to admit things they're not guilty of. They're not guilty of, and, uh, and some people have, especially in a- academia, have grabbed hold of this wholeheartedly. I've seen this female professor. I know I'm a racist, even though I don't think I am. I must be. You know, it's silly. It's ridiculous. And uh, but they're begging to just be accepted so they can go- move on, but they never will be. And that's part of this thing. Black Lives Matter has very little to do with black people. It's more Marxist. You know, no nuclear family, none of this stuff. They want you to buy into all that crap. And it's just, uh, and this guy had the guts to go against it in a very measured, uh, you know, respectful way, I thought. Got it. Tim, first of all, your, th- your thoughts on, uh, you know, the First Amendment and serving, and then uh, second um, your thoughts on uh, on on where on, on on the the pickle that the Air Force finds themselves in? Sure, I I uh, I'm a huge proponent of the First Amendment. I think one of the things that defines us as Americans is our ability to say no when we want to say no because we have the right to say no. When we join the service, we of course surrender some of our uh, uh, some of our rights. We surrender the ability to run for office, for example. And we we surrender our ability to launch polemic attacks against the current administration. Um, There is an obligation on the part of military officers to support the current administration and commander in chief and not say anything derogatory about him, uh, et cetera, et cetera. But what we're talking about here is an Air Force officer that has essentially written a book very similar to many other books currently being written by sociologists in which he points out the irrefutable fact that most of this stuff is grounded in Marxist ideology, which the founders of BNM would be happy to admit to. The other thing is, is that the, the military time starts referencing some other white supremacist stuff. And I start digging around and find an article that said that last year, let me see if I, I'm, I'm excuse me for a second, make sure I got the number right. Last year, the FBI opened investigations on 143 current and former service members. So real quick, back to the envelope math, just using the active duty and reservists, they total out right now at 3,851. That's 0.00004765 of our armed forces that we're talking about might be white extremist or white whatever, something I've never even heard of. And I've been white pretty much my entire life. So I, I, uh, we're, we're chasing... The military is on a path where they're lecturing against something which is not based in a fundamental reality. It's a simulation of reality. And what this officer has done is what every Lance Corporal that's listened to this bullshit has already done, which is if he's he's pointed out that the emperor is wearing no clothes when it comes to this particular matter. And um, and there is absolutely uh, no reason for him to get to get fired like that. And it's going to backfire on him. He's not this. This may be one that gets changed, although I if I were Air Force, I wouldn't put him back in command because you're not supposed to. You know, once you once you shit can a guy, that's it should be. But he might be back and it'd be interesting to see. 
Yeah, you know, I, I think, and, and I'll link it to a broader issue that we talked about before, and that is, you know, the, uh, the people that ascend to the highest ranks in the American military are high-end conformists, okay? And one of the problems that we see as we look at different issues is the lack of somebody at that level that says, hey, wait a minute, right? I mean, and consider this. The Marine Corps, you know, there's an article written in Navy Times, Marine Corps Times last week, that Marine infantry is without a job. Two years into General Berger's commandancy and the development of force design, we still don't know. Where are the professional infantry officers raising hell saying, what are we doing? How does this work? We're reconfiguring the force, yet we don't know what our real mission is anymore. Right? Do you see a lot of that? I don't. And so to me, what you see here is this, this well, you better not say anything, though. And, and that is certainly, and, and Jeff alludes to a very interesting time in Marine Corps history about um, during maneuver warfare. There were people that were known as attritionists, the two mm-hmm. up and one back. And let me tell you, they didn't have any compunction of, of, of airing out what they thought was bullshit. Yeah, well, let me just tell you, I know, I, I know what I've seen. I know what I've seen in Vietnam. You know, I know what I saw in I-Corps, you know, and, and I know it works. And now you're going to tell me all this skip and go naked shit? They didn't. I mean, and we were raised around those guys that, hey, don't be afraid to, to speak your mind. And so, so, but always caveated with this. But you better be respectful and you better have your shit together or you're going to get your shit aired out, right? And so and, – and, and, and you just brought up a great point. From the thesis of the, the new maneuver warfare thing, you know, and the thesis of the guy's bitter experience in Vietnam, a lot of those – Maneuver warfare guys were guys who had a lot of hard shit happen to them in Vietnam. And from those two theses, a synthesis occurred because everybody was allowed to speak. And the missions are still there, just like the missions are still here now. So when we went into Desert Desert Storm, I mean, we, uh, you know, we out... We out exceeded the uh, the expectations of how long it would take, you know, against the defenses that the Marine Corps went through. And uh, that's that's the value of free speech in a practical sense, that everybody gets to have their opinion. Everything is considered. You're no one is shut down. And then from the and, and from those the mixing of ideas comes, you know, a, a better way of doing things. That's also true diversity. Yes, that's yeah. exactly of, right. Of, of thought, and let me just tell you. Um, so, we meet around 1990, the, the four of us, right? And I read a book called The Enlightened Soldier. I walk into John uh, Allen's office and said, "You know, you know this uh, this military society thing that he talks about in here. Why don't we do that?" And Major Allen looks at me and says, "Mac." That's a great idea. Why don't we? Why don't we? Why don't we start a chapter here? And so we used to call it exactly. We we used to call it the the mucus meeting, right? Marine Corps University Society, and there was a bunch of captains. Many of them will be go on to become general officers and whatnot, and and rise to the rank of colonel. And we used to show up with pizza and beer. Somebody, I remember Dave Furness uh, presented the first paper. The employment of the 81-millimeter mortar platoon in the Mew, right? 
and he's a first lieutenant. And he stands up and we ripped the shit out of him. And we argued. We argued about maneuver warfare. A great friend of ours, Dutch Schreiber, would be in there. He was really, he's a smart guy. But it was smart. It was funny. And, and we, we would air each other's asses out. Sometimes just to be jackasses, you know, and just to, to, uh, to, to criticize what some, but we wrote, we debated. And, and really, we're, this is a version of that. This is a continuation of that which we started, you know, 30-plus years ago. So that's, that's the basis of our relationship and, and I think, uh, the way we saw our duty. And, again, uh, just as some – the guys from Vietnam, I mean, they had a little bit of an Israeli attitude of never again. Never again will we shut our mouths. Never again will we not say the right – speak up when we should speak up. Because we just watched that shit in action, and we won't do that. And we got raised by those guys, right? And so, so to me, what this is, is that it's this conformist thing, right? And you go back to Greg Newbold, right, is the only one that says, hey, I won't be a part of this. And we need more people like that that will be leaders that will say, this is bullshit, right? <laughs> this is what we're, what we're embracing. Where is the general officer who's clicked off safe on – critical race theory and it's Marxist origins and says, where is that? Where is he or she? Yeah. And, and so now this guy in a measured way in, in a self-published work that he runs through the base staff judge advocate and gets told, yeah, you don't have to submit this to the DOD. Why is that guy relieved? Because he's not in lockstep. And to me, that's exactly why he's relieved. And that's bullshit. And as Will just said, diversity is first diversity of thought. Right, and that's, in my opinion, diversity of thought begets all other forms of diversity. So. Yep. Thoughts, questions, comments, Bueller, anybody? <laughs> what? What? What do you think is going to happen? What do you think? So, how about this? What do you think is going to happen, William? Yeah, I mean, it's something. A three-star general fires a guy and then and then initiates an investigation. Uh, they get some pushback in Congress, and they suck it up into the Air Force IG's office. And I don't know if that's at the secretary level or if that's, you know, the service level IG. I'm not sure it really matters. And so this thing is going to go deep into the bowels uh, and – uh, you know, they'll play out the string. I don't, yeah. I don't know how they reinstate the guy, but they're, they're not going to come to ground truth because ground truth is, um, he's well in line with ideas that we've talked about having diversity of thought. Uh, I haven't read the book. Um, <clears throat> let's just make an assumption that it is, measured, data-driven, uh, or opinion-based without being um, derogatory, you know, in language, just in fact, um, then, you know, the, the other thing I, I would say is there's not a lot of people on earth that want the weight of the U.S. government investigating you. You know, he may be absolutely 1,000% correct in this, uh, but if he drove over a yellow line in 19... 19- uh, 94 and didn't admit it uh, on his pre-commissioning 
you know, for all you know, that's it's, it's crazy. Um, I think the Air Force got themselves in a box. Not quite sure how they're going to get out of it. Uh, I can't imagine they're going to reinstate this guy to command. Um, maybe he typed the book on his work computer, you know. Yeah. Well, I mean, government you know, property. that's interesting because so what you'll read is while we believe his relief was inappropriate, he typed this book. He typed 36.2% of this book on his work computer, which is conduct on becoming an officer and a violation of Article 134, which is the general article, which is what they throw at your ass when they don't have shit. And here's a phenomenon about the military. Remember Colonel, um, Lieutenant Colonel, he got murdered in uh, Beirut. Um, you went to his funeral, Will. Um, yeah. Oh, his wife was in it with Lieutenant Colonel. Yeah. Gas. Yeah. Uh, I forget. Hans or Haskin. Higgins. Higgins. Bo Higgins. Higgins. Right. Colonel Higgins? Higgins was doing what he's supposed to be doing. He's a UN observer, and he got kidnapped, tortured, and murdered on tape. And, um, but there's, uh, the, I remember talking Marine officers saying, well, you know, he was where he wasn't supposed to be. There's always somebody when something bad or unjust happens to a guy, they'll come up with some kind of qualifier, you know, well, you know, like Will said, he, he typed it on his uh, government computer or, you know, well, you know, um, you see he's in the air force, right? So, well, you know, he, uh, he used a government credit card to pay for a hotel room or something. And, you know, that cause they couldn't fit him at the BOQ. You know that that is a is is a common. You know, people always want to find a reason why somebody who got fucked over deserved it somehow. Yeah, that would if if I was handicapping this, I, yeah. I think that's absolutely like they will they will say that they that that Lieutenant General Whiting was wrong, <laughs> and we therefore relieved him or her, whoever the hell they are, which would be rich. He committed the worst crime an officer can do. Right. He, he has bad luck. <laughs> and uh, But upon further review, we found that, you know, he, yeah, you know, right. he did not keep his yard on, uh, on his, 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 in his base housing in accordance with, you know, standards of the base, and, and we believe that he should not be returned. It's interesting to me because this hunt for white supremacists or whatever it is we're hunting for, very similar to the reorganization of the Marine Corps, very similar to the COVID response in that none of these particular endeavors are grounded in reality. They're grounded in simulations. They're not, there's no, there, there's no reality of, of, of white supremacists. It's something that they have created out of whole cloth. The same with the Marine Corps redesign. The, it doesn't touch reality. We don't know that what China's going to do and not do really. We don't even know what the hell the redesign's based off. And we got to take it at the word that the simulation is real enough, close enough to reality that it warrants a drastic uh, reorganization of the Marine Corps. I don't believe that. I don't believe uh, in a lot of the things that are happening today because it's not grounded in reality. So as this simulation plays out, where the hell can it go? Because in the back of the mind, well, I let me let me just tell you, it can go wherever somebody wants it to go because nobody's going to speak up and say anything about it. Because if you do, you're fired. Man. Yeah, you're done. And yeah, that's the thing that's, to me. That's the thing that's so dangerous about all of this is you. Who do you is, owe? Is, you, who do you owe your allegiance to? Who do you owe your loyalty to? The person or the institution? 
to the institution. We all know that. But that's not the way it is anymore. Remember uh, back in the Matrix, when uh, at the very beginning of the movie, when uh, when uh, the, the Neo character gets some money and he puts it in a hollowed out book. The title of the book was Simulations and Simulacra. It's a famous uh, 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 book by French intellectual Jean uh, Baudrillard, I believe, as they say it. But but I was studying that particular individual whose name I can't say it in uh, last semester. And he, and, and he he was talking in the 1950s of exactly what we're seeing now. These We keep on constructing simulations with which we pe- keep people's attention so they're not paying attention to the fact that things are not going very well for us. Wealth is contracting in this country into a very, very uh, uh, finite numbers up, uh, uh, up on top. The middle class is getting the screws put to us in many ways. And I think, I think that's, that's what it's designed to cover. This morning, the Wall Street Journal reports that Facebook is uh, no longer blocking content or comments and, and even the way that Facebook articulated this, that said that the COVID virus was, I think, human originated. They don't even, the, the word China doesn't even appear in it, right? <laughs> right? I mean, you saw that actor begging for his life, right? Because he, because he like stated the fact that Taiwan's a nation, right? And, yeah. and so, so, but it's, it was interesting, even in the thing that the Wall Street Journal put out quoting Facebook. Facebook is now allowing comments, but the word China doesn't appear. You know, there was man, it was man-made origins or something like that. And so you see this. And so to me, it's this, again, whether you call it the thought police or whatever, it's, it's playing the emperor's new clothes on all these things. And, you know, vigorous footnoted intellectual discourse and rigor is, I think, quintessentially American. Well, when you stop doing that, and, and think about that, Facebook does n- did not allow any comment on its platform that said COVID China, COVID man-made. Think about that. That, that you know. So, yeah. and, and which to me, <clears throat> where's the nation going when Mark Zuckerberg and J- Jeff Bezos, and what's the dude's name that runs Twitter? Jack Dorsey. Dorsey. Jack Dorsey. When those guys run the free speech of the nation. Right now, they own 40% combined, 40% of the value of the standards import index just between them. That's a hell of a lot of control, my friend. And Google owns 92% of the search traffic on the planet. Mm-hmm. I do that duck, duck, go stuff, man. Uh, no kidding. Me too. I remember Mike Wiley. Oh, yeah. Mike Wiley. Um, Colonel Wiley was a maneuver maneuver warfare guy, and he was just kind of like savant at where, command and staff or the Marine Corps University. He had this little hovel of an office, and uh, but his Vietnam buddies protected him. Guys like guys like Ben Riper, guys like. Yeah, that was one of his platoon commanders. Right. And so Zinni, you know, and and Colonel Wiley, though, he was. He was out there by simply the way he he expressed himself, and he was a kind of a different dude, right? Yeah. And you'd go over More academic. Oh, he, he was he was yeah. like the zany college professor 
but he was smart. And you sat down and you spoke with him and you got smart about stuff. And they included him. Mike Wiley was a part of all those different discussions. And it was really interesting. The night of the Zinni PME at, um, at the basic school, if you've never heard it, you should listen to it. Um, I go because Major Kelly said, hey, Mac, you're going to – I was – I hadn't gone – I was slated to go to IOC, but I wasn't there yet. We were getting ready to do long-range patrols during the day, and I see Major Kelly walking across the campus. And he looks at me and goes, hey, are you going to go see General Zinni or Colonel Zinni tonight? And I said, I, I, I don't know who he is, sir. Should I go? Because there's always somebody speaking at the basic school, right? And you're working – you know, you're working your ass off. And, you know, now you're going to do a long-range patrol and then go listen to somebody – you know, tell you about how to read your leave and earnings statement, right? And so <laughs> so I said, should I go? And he goes, yeah. He said, make sure you're there. I sat there, and it was really interesting because you had Wiley sitting in there. You had John Boyd, the Oodloop guy, sitting in there. And I'll never forget, I'm sitting in the back with Lou Craparata, I think, and, or, and Phil Smith. And then Boyd's sitting forward of me to my left. Wiley's sitting directly in front of me by about, a dozen people. And then over on the far right is Bill Lynn sitting next to General Van Riper and Zinni's up on stage, right? And so everybody wants to, the inside baseball is Zinni's going to confront or he's going to have to deal with Bill Lind, who's going to be, you know, who was, you know, the maneuver warfare guy and the heretic of the Marine Corps, tell the Marine Corps how fucked up it was. And you watch this like tennis match in public. It was awesome. It was one. It was great theater, but it was great intellectual discourse. As you, as 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 Lynn attacks both, um, Lynn attacks Zinni. Boyd takes Zinni to task on a nuanced point. Are you? I can't remember which word he 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 said. Are you saying this means this or this means that? And it was fascinating as a as a as a young captain to listen to this, but to see that example of intellectual rigor. Whether we're talking about Marxism, right, and derivative Marxism teaching and then being shoved down the throat of the American military, whether we're talking about that, right, is that what we're doing? All right. Because Zinni was was criticizing our POI that was in use at that time. He was throwing bombs at us, too. It was hilarious. That was freaking awesome. (laughs) Zinni, I mean, it was like Def Jam Comedy Hour. He does this thing about Range 5. And range 11 were, I mean, range 11, you did this flanking attack, and somebody had the, and so the force that was flanking was down in a, a kind of a little little draw. It was a little draw. It was a big draw. And when you got close to the objective that you would assault, and you're online down in that little draw, I mean, the hill was straight up. And he, you know, he remembers it. And he said, so he goes, you know, the guy hands me the Willie Peter grenade. He said, because back then, when men were men, we didn't throw smoke. We threw Willie Peter grenades. He says, Zinni, are you an Alice arm? Can you get this thing up that hill? And he said, yes, sir, I could do it, right? And he says, the little guy in the skunk hat, because they wore steel pots with a white stripe painted around the crown of it, right? That was a skunk hat. And so he was an instructor. So he does this comedy routine the whole time bagging on the dogmatic way that he learned how to fight. And then he go, says, and I'm okay with that because I asked somebody in charge at the time when I got back here, some captain, 
right? <laughs> Which is hilarious, right? He said, look, I understand that I have to learn the basics, but why did I have to do my graduate work? And then he puts his palm of his hand right over his face and he says, in Vietnam, right? He said, "Wasn't isn't there something that links me to reality? And then he goes and he bronzes it out and he says, and we're still there today. I'm still looking for the the twenty foot contour lines where I got twenty meters in Vietnam. I'm for lo- I'm still looking for him right on top of a hilltop with the with his flank right dangling off the side of a hill exposed. And he says, and it's just not there. Every time I find him, he's in depth. And then he draws this North Vietnamese X position. He said, you know, when I was a advisor, I went through these positions. And imagine sitting there as a captain, and he draws this X. He said, yeah, so, so we Yankee D, yeah, right. So yeah. we'd bump into it, and then we'd flank it, and we'd get hit again from two sides, and then mm-hmm. we'd but we'd try to flank it again, and we'd still get. I couldn't get my hands around this guy, and so to me, the example was intellectual discourse by bright people, right? Who who are required to footnote. And what a great example that was to all of us, right, as young leaders. And we're still doing it today. Colonel Wiley, I think he was there in 65, and then he was back there in 68, 69. Yeah, he was originally, his job was putting out leaflets, his first tour, out of OV-10. He was a psychological warfare officer. And he's about 5'9", 165 pounds. And uh, I think he spoke with a bit of a stutter. And, uh, you know, I had a great intellectual breakthrough with him. He was hard to listen to based on his delivery. And I finally got over that. And you realize the guy was an absolute genius. And you could line up a thousand people and say, which one is the Marine Colonel? And the last guy you would have picked was Mike Wiley. And he was phenomenal. And, Mm -hmm. uh, I mean, I hope we got room for people like him uh, today. I, you know, I, 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 what, what is your sense, though, Will? What is your sense? Do we? Yeah, I don't. Uh, he is. He is no way a prototypical anything. And he was at the perfect spot at that time. I think he was a vice president of Mercury University. He was. So You're right. he, I think he could uh, touch all the schools uh, that he wanted to. You know, if I remember right, when he was a company commander, he's Delta 1-5, and he had James Webb as one of his lieutenants. And when he turned over, he turned over Delta 1-5, I think, to General Zinni, 1970. I I just, I remember being, uh, we did a little, you know, map exercise with him one time, and he had his, he had his map from Arizona Territory. Yeah. Wow. And, uh, you know, you could see sort of the cloudy look in his face. He'd be wandering back. In 1969, uh, at that time, really, really superstar guy uh, that the Marine Corps got in the right place at the right time. But, but, but the question: Do you think Mike Wiley would survive in today's Marine Corps? That it doesn't seem like it welcomes dissent. I don't. Yeah, and I, I don't know that he was a dissenter. He was just a, you know, a very smart guy who had thought things through and and. Uh, you know, based on experience and study, put them together. Right. Uh, yeah, I don't. 
I don't know if we'd find. I don't know what his PFT score is, so I'm not sure where he'd get nowadays. Right. You know, <laughs> he was a funny guy though. He was funny. Yeah. Hey, let me tell you. Hey. Talk about wicked smart, right? And and, and and as 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 Will said, so he would talk like, "Hi, I'm Colonel Mike." And his voice would like it was it was an uneven meter to his voice. And so most, I mean, you'd go you'd go listen to him speak, and most guys who are hammerheads in the Marine Corps, they're like, "Who the fuck is this guy, man?" And you'd look at him and say, "Like, just shut up and listen." And they'd be like, "Uh, you know, whatever. I'm out, right?" And you know, and so the only people that would stay would be. In my opinion, the smart guys stayed and listened, and not and, and and a lot of guys disagreed with him, you know. But I I don't know that that guy I don't I don't know that is there a version of Mike Wiley in the Marine Corps today? After you left, Mac, I think you might have been gone too. Well, we had uh, we had him and and Von Krevold come, and they're in one of the little classrooms at IOC, and he had a bottle of water and he didn't know what to do with it, and he I think he handed it to. Uh, I don't know, maybe killer or something like that. And he goes, "You here? Can, can, oh, thank you. Hold this for me, will you?" And uh, you can have some if you want. Don't worry, I don't have AIDS or anything. <laughs> he goes, yeah, you know. <laughs> but he was funny. He's a funny guy. He was smart for sure. But again, but I remember that. But about again, that. You, and you take that back to the climate that you create. What was yeah. the message that got sent to every fucking officer, every leader in the Air Force with his relief? Shut up. Yeah. Shut up and call it. The, the exact opposite of what we witnessed with Colonel uh, Zinni back when he was talking about us. He directly argued, talking about Christmas us. And getting an argument about flak jackets with, with General Christmas. Oh, my exactly. God. Yeah. I mean, exact, oh, it's the exact opposite. Oh, no, General. Yeah. yeah, I mean, at that night at that PME, and Zinni says this I love this debate about helmets and flak jackets. He said, you know, I hear these guys say, I always wore my flak jacket. It was always zipped up. He said, my helmet and my chin strap was always buttoned. And he says, bullshit. I've never seen I've never seen a picture of that in my life. Right? He goes, because uh, goes, I don't believe him. For every one guy they saved, he goes, nine guys got wounded or, ki- nine guys got wounded or killed because they were out of gas. He said, I think they're, they're counterproductive to mobility. They hurt the force overall. And he goes off on this thing. And then he says, let me tell you about one night when I was at 9th Marines uh, in Okinawa. He used to chair Warrior Night. Now, I never, I never was there. I wish I would have. Freddie, Freddie told me about that. Yeah, he was there. And he says he brings Bill Fike, he brings John Ripley, and General Van Riper, who's the chief of staff of the 3rd Marine Division. They're all on the island. He brings them all there for a night. And he said, so we're doing this thing, and then, now we're doing a Q&A. He said, and you know. The lieutenants, they're all little heretics now because you raise them like that here. Guys like Mike Wiley and, and John <laughs> Kelly and Ray Cole, you, they send them out there, and these kids are gunning for you, right? So one of them asks a question, and every one of these guys answers in a different way, right? And then Zinni says this. One, they called the philosopher. One, they called the surfer. And one, they called the Prussian. Now, Zinni's up on the stage with his microphone, right? And Van Riper, who's a one-star, is sitting to his left with Bill Lind at a table. And he looks at Van Riper and says, don't wax your board, General. Right? (laughs) And the the whole room. So, I mean, he's busting Van Riper's balls in public. Right? I mean, and this is this intellectual discourse. And then Van Riper, I mean, talk about Wicked Smart. Right? And you, and you, and, 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 and Zinni's, 
you know, as wickedly smart as as Wiley. And you, so you saw where these guys intersected on this intellectual plane, right? Knowing how important that discourse was to not repeating the sins of Vietnam. Yep. Right. Yeah, because they're and, talking and, about they're talking about problems based in reality. Well, and then here, so here's the question: and then what happens to us in the late '90s and the early zeros? Will we turn our back on that and we repeat the sins of Vietnam? Absolutely right. Yeah, and, I, and, I know, say it starts with Tel Yeah, you, you. Well, you think about the, the war. I call the war Iraq and and Afghanistan. What are the lessons of the war? Oh, you know, God, it's, at the Marine Corps level, we have no idea. We have no idea. Just the Zinni debate on helmets and flak jackets. You know, they were mandated. You got somebody wounded after about 2005, and you had to have the inventory of all the equipment they were wearing or weren't wearing. Right. We went into unit rotation because we thought we'd learned a lesson from Vietnam about individual rotation. There's plenty of data. We'd never do a study on it. I mean, my sense is that most units took a chunk of their casualties, assuming that, you know, enemy activity is constant uh, in the beginning of their deployments because the, the, the competence of a unit grew while you were there and it fell off a cliff. We yeah. never did a study on how to do a turnover. And yeah. one of the most critical things you could do is a relief in place and not the tactical, you know, Echo Company takes Alpha Company. I'm talking how to fundamentally do a turnover. We never, we've never looked at pre-deployment training. Well, what they did is they got the word on how many people they could put in Iraq first, and and they just put them in there, and there was no tactical thought below of the uh, battalion level. I'm saying though, we have no idea. There is no intellectual rigor that's gone into the war. And, uh, you know, if you read uh, the books on uh, the U.S. Marine history of Vietnam, it's about seven or eight of those green cover books. If there's one thing that you can take by reading all of those books is that Marine Corps involvement from was, what, 1962 or 63, we had people in there, till 75. The one thing you can take away by reading that history, we did it completely ad hoc. For 13 years. Yeah. And I would tell you right now, I think that we did Iraq and Afghanistan ad hoc for 20 years. Uh, so, you know, and now well, uh, I'm yeah. reading this book. I'm reading this, this book. Hey, well, let, let, well let, let me just, let me just bomb in. I, uh, because I ran combat operation centers, I don't know how many battalions I saw rip in and rip out of both, uh, Fallujah in 2006 and then Hellman in 2007 and also in, in when I was doing current ops in for the last part of my uh, tour in 2004. I mean, but, I mean, dozens. And you're absolutely right. The, the majority of those casualties get taken in the first 90 days while they figure it the fuck out because everybody's new. And even if you're, even if you're going back, you're not going back in the same capacity as you were there before, and that's a completely, you know, it is a it is a markedly different skill set. So you're, I, you, just so you, you're absolutely right, and I watched it every a lot. 
you, you know, I mentioned a couple of weeks ago that book, The Hardest Place by Wes Morgan, about the Pesh Valley in uh, in Kunar province. That's the big takeaway from his entire book, because he traces it from the start to the end. Nobody who was in there uh, after the first couple of rotations had any idea what they were doing there. No, no idea why they were where they were and of what use this possibly could be to the overall uh, uh, campaign. And that's that, that's I. We talked about this referencing Vietnam when we were captains. It's a little bit uh, tedious and frustrating to talk about it still. Yeah, yeah, this is a subject that's so infuriating for me. I'm not even going to say anything. But uh, that was a counterinsurgency in both places. And, and the, the fact that it's a counterinsurgency ignored, ignored mm-hmm. by everybody above the rank of lieutenant colonel. Mm-hmm. And, and so consequently, we kept doing the same stupid shit over and over again. I mean, what good does it do to have a bunch of kids from Nebraska and fucking California tromping around looking in people's houses for shit? You know, I mean, it's stupid. You know, it was just stupid. And uh, they're going to hate you forever for that. And, uh, you know, it's just I'm not saying anything else. I, I, I'm reading this book. Orletto said, learning war. You know, it's about the Navy at the end of the 1800s, early 1900s. And it's like a 20-year insurgency, which eventually takes over the Navy about just how to get better. Uh, And they they put real intellectual effort uh, into it. And, you know, you look at our military now, and, uh, again, the Secretary thinks that we need to devote our effort to rooting out extremism. Um, the, the commandant's fundamentally reordered the Marine Corps. Maybe he's trying to put intellectual rigor, but it, it brings to mind that Lynn Wells memo to Donald Rumsfeld about seeing the future. But explain. Put, we'll just go. Just explain about what you're talking. Yeah, about. Yeah, I think that's on your read board. So it is. I, I think Rumsfeld, you know, asked about as we look into the future, what should we look at? And this guy Lynn Wells wrote him a memo. Said basically, if you were at 1900 you would think this was your problem. If you were at 1910, you would think this is your problem, 1920. And every single time, the people that were the conventional wisdom on what the next 10 years would look like were were 180. They had no idea. You can't predict the future 10 years in advance. Uh, Yeah, let me tell you, it's an awesome memo, too. Yeah, and it's short. It's a one-pager. Yeah, it's one page. It's on on the read board. His picture's up there, Lynn Wells. And, and so uh, instead of devoting real intellectual rigor to the force, what it's supposed to do, how it's supposed to do it, we're, we're, we're diverting ourselves into weird things. And we're doing things that are absolutely anyone who steps back just a little bit knows won't work. If you If you're trying to organize your force so that it, looks like America in no way will that make you the best force. Uh, if you are suppressing intellectual discourse, there's no way that you can get to a better, uh, idea. Um, so these things are, you know, they're fundamentally dangerous because the other thing, you know, time is a window and the window closes, right? And all this time, that we're wasting doing whatever we're doing. There are people that are actually pretty smart and pretty dedicated and our ultimate demise is their goal. And they're not wasting time. Yeah. Right now. Yeah. Our window 
to the next Pearl Harbor, the next 9-11, it's closing. And when that window closes, we're just going to be surprised. And so, oh, geez, how could we have gotten here? And think about it. We're pretty damn lucky. The only people who predict the future are tyrants. Hitler, he could predict, oh, yeah, big war is coming because I'm going to start it. You know, and the uh, same thing with the communist Chinese. Same thing with Kim Il-sung when he decided to invade uh, South Korea. He knew he wanted that war to start in 1948. And uh, Stalin wouldn't let him, wouldn't let him in 1949. And finally, after, the, after one of our feckless secretaries of state drew a line and a map during an interview that didn't include Korea, they said, yeah, let's go ahead and go for it this year. Huh. Sort of like what we're doing with Taiwan now. Yeah, kind of. The Linwell's memo ends with this. He writes it on April in April of two thousand one, right? As a uh, at, at um, um, he gets this note from Don Rumsfeld, right? I have to go shower after saying that, but that name. You got a you got a snowflake. <laughs> you will recall that we had Andy Marshall come over and we briefly discussed the defense strategy review. And what the future might hold. I ran across this piece on the difficulty of predicting the future written by one of the folks here at the Pentagon, Lynn Wells. I thought you might find it interesting. All right. So he sends that. So Rumsfeld sends this right to to the president of the United States, George Bush. Uh, he CCs Dick Cheney and Condoleezza Rice. And, 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 and well, it goes through like starting in 1900. And it goes through like this was what they prepared for. This is what happened. And he ends with this. All of which I say that I'm not sure what 2010 will look like, but I am sure that it will be very little like we expect, so we should plan accordingly. Now think about that. Think about that and the Marine Corps completely focused on the South China Sea, right? And then vis-a-vis the Lynn Wells memo, right? The Lynn Wells memo. And virtually no dexterity in the Marine Corps to morph into something else should we need to because we got told by Congress to focus on China, okay? And and I would tell you this. I think the reason that no general officers, I don't think, I know, no general officers have come out and spoken in support of this because every time the Marine Corps has been pushed in a direction like this, the Marine Corps kept its powder dry. How did we do that? We kept enough of the force you know, enough capability as generalists to be able to respond to anything and be of value anywhere, any climb in place. And we're turning our back on that, right? The whole Marine Corps is going to be littoral regiments. At least that's what we've been told. And that's why I think you've seen no retired general officers support this because it, it's against what they know to be, to be true. And, and, I, and, and I will take it back to this Air Force Lieutenant Colonel. When you remove right? Intellectual, vibrant intellectual discourse. And when you stop allowing your subordinates to disagree with you, historically, you put yourself on a path of destruction, right? And the premise of that destruction would would be the Lynn Wells memo. It is not going to be as you envision it. It will be something else, right? And if you don't allow those Vietnam guys to click off safe and to to argue and to debate and feel comfortable doing that, you won't. Would you, I assure you, you you will not be as prepared. So, mm. interesting. Lynn Wells, though, nice call, Will. Um, um, each of you has failed an assignment, which is well, I, I, I'm pretty sure. 
You're supposed to send me a list of 10 books, yes? I really? sent you a list of like 50. Oh, I didn't realize I was owed, then, I owed you one, man. Then two-thirds of you have failed this requirement. And uh, so I need a list of at least 10. That, that you've mentioned on this program. So if you can recall those you've mentioned on this program, gotcha. uh, I will put gotcha. it. I will put it on, on the the to, the read board. So, all right, what uh, what are you reading this week, William? Uh, I read the book. Let me pull it up here. I read the book Stephen Pressfield. And he wrote Gates of Fire. He's written some other historical novels. So I read this week. I read it's called The Virtues of War. It's about Alexander the Great. It's okay, I would say. Gates of Fire, so far is his best. This was okay. You learn some things about Alexander that I think are probably true. Um, so it was reasonable. Uh, and now I'm continuing to read this book by Hone H O N E, Learning War, that Mike Marletto recommended. It's uh, it's about the Navy late 1800s, early 1900s, and how they went from uh, being, you know, a heroic individual fighting ship Navy into a more systemized learning professional organization to include, you know, getting rid of seniority as a basis for um, promotion and uh, integrating engineering officers with line officers. And there's a whole chapter on how they develop fire control which is really something because it's a, it's a huge series of experiments that go on throughout the fleet and they have this sort of open architecture and they're integrating best practices and then they're retraining other people in best practices. And then those people are refining those and there's new inventions coming in that they're testing. So it's a, you know, it's a, it's a, it's what you expect a professional force that, relies on men and machinery, new machinery, and how you integrate it to get good uh, across a very disparate organization. And, uh, yeah, look, it's a book the CNO should read, then he should have all the admirals read it, uh, and then they should just damn do it. Um, they'd be a lot better Navy today if they could emulate their forefathers from 100 years ago. Tim, what do you read? The uh, I I actually uh, just picked up a book that Will talked about a few weeks back, which was uh, uh, the Western Way of War by by Victor Davis Hanson, because I had every other book that he mentioned, but I didn't realize that that uh, he had written a Keganist uh, book about uh, basically down at the um, at the engagement level uh, of of what Greek warfare was like, and I'm just enjoying the hell out of it. So it's, uh, um, but it's, it will be one I will not add to my list I sent you because I swiped it from Will. But, but it's, it's enjoyable as hell. Just enjoying the hell out of it. And you won't put it on your list because um, it's, because on, Will, it's on Will's list? I got it from Will. Me, me and Will, if you haven't noticed, we trade books back and forth. If, he, if, if I find something unique, I watch him write it down, and I do the same with him. So that's, that's how he found American oh. Buffalo. Yeah, and then don't worry – when it's stolen off your nightstand, you'll know who stole it. Wow. <laughs> I can't get around that fast anymore. 
No, I, I actually have taken, I got those little, like, from the library of, and I've just been putting yeah, Colonel Jeff right. Kenny in like, every one of my like books. Like, that would slow anybody Colonel down. Colonel Jeff Kenny, USMC. <laughs> yeah, and all my books now. Yeah. How many it's, books it's do you have that have that stamp, that great embosser on, oh, yeah. I, that is right, I stole it from him. <laughs> more more than, a, more than a handful. Jeff, what are you reading? Well, I'm, re- I'm still reading Ghost Ship by Hornfisher, and it's funny that Will brings up the stuff he did about the melding together, the engineering officers and the line officers, because um, two things are jump out at me. This is right when the Houston is about to get, along with the Perth, is about to get sunk because they inadvertently sailed straight into the teeth of Japanese fleet off of Java and, uh, in 1942, early 1942. And the thing that gets me is that the, one of the survivors talks about the courage of, of doing your, your task that's been drilled into you um, no matter what the situation, like no matter how much fire's coming in, no matter how much smoke and stuff like that, the of doing your job. Because if your job is operating the uh, the elevator that brings ammo to the gun mount and everything, that has to be done again and again flawlessly. And, uh, and so they talk about that. The, the idea that your combat job is crucially important, even though you're, you're, you're not even seeing – whether it's raining or sunny outside because it's down in the bowels of the ship somewhere. And then the second thing is it, they're part of that. Um, the uh, American, British, Australian, uh, Dutch conglomeration of uh, ships. And they have to get fuel oil from the Dutch. And it's different than American fuel oil and that it's thinner. And you can't get up to speed as, as much as you could uh, with the uh, you know, the oil that uh, the Brits and the Americans manufacture. So they're having to deal with that. And they had no idea that was going to happen. Kind of like when I was telling you uh, last week about there's flat, there's some, all four countries have different semaphore, um, you know, not totally different, but different enough to where it's confusing to communicate. And uh, so this thing with the fuel is a big deal. It cuts down on their speed. And then the Dutch are making them, won't give it to them. Even in the extremist thing they're in, you know, about to be annihilated by the superior Japanese, they're having a, they finally grudgingly give up their, uh, their, their watery ass fuel to the uh, Americans and the Australians. So it's interesting. It talks about that. The whole idea of uh, it changed and you got to be drill was how you get, um, was how you get flexibility. The drilling of the sailors to do their jobs under pressure. Drilling again, so they do it without thought, so they do it uh, instinctively, and no matter what you know is, is happening to them, they can still do it. Um, interesting. Um, if you've ever been through damage control school, I mean, you, you want to talk about, I mean, mm-hmm. you want to talk about getting tested and then having to do it in real life, right, with steam lines bursting open, you know, the fuel lines that run through the ship, the water lines that run through the ship, and all that, the electricity that runs through the ship, rerouting all that stuff. I mean, that's what damage control is, right? Learning how to shore up with 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 lumber, right, and all the things you use when you do damage control, man. Let me tell you, it is it is not for the faint of heart, and uh, which leads me to where is the Bonhomme Richard investigation? Yeah, I'm waiting for that. Like, how did an American warship burn in port for five days? And it's, it just went through the Panama Canal, I think, a week or two ago, headed for scrap in, in I think, Pascagoula, Mississippi or something. And, uh, you know, um, how does that happen? And, and again, if you damage control, you know, the discipline that it takes to do that, 
below deck with the craziness that's going on in your ship um, is uh, yeah, is not for the faint of heart. So, uh, yeah. Anyway, all right, boys. Uh, I didn't read anything, but I do have something to share with you. If you ever spill something on your keyboard that has a lot of sugar in it, the way you get that off is you dump isopropyl alcohol on it. I didn't know that. Yeah. For, hey, first, don't try to deflect the fact that you haven't read a book in like six months. It, <laughs> well, just for the just for the just for the, just for the chemistry. Just for the record, it's been longer than that. No, you know what? That's not true because I listen. <laughs> I listen to books. So, um, well, if you're reading a book in your house when me and Will came and visited, you're not going to be able to finish that book because I got it. <laughs> <laughs> you know what? I, I, I you know, I, I that did not even highly. occur to me that that you would you would have stolen that. But yeah, isopropyl alcohol, kill the electricity, dump it on your keyboard, wipe the excess off, but let it go down into where the coffee, whatever, spilled, and you won't have to replace your keyboard. How about that? Just uh, just so you know. Um, I, I do think in closing, science. this is a pretty important topic. Um, the, the fact that as a as a... As, some, as a member of the armed forces, that you could write, you know, an academic piece, right? And this guy, he didn't motherfuck anybody, right? He wrote an he wrote an academic piece that said, "Look, what we're doing is we're embracing Marxist philosophy, and I think it's wrong." If you can't say that, then then that's a big deal. That yep. is an absolute big deal because again, we got raised by guys from Vietnam. And I will tell you, they were heretics. They they were not going to shut their mouths and go quietly because they had seen the body count stack up, you know, in terms of the evidence of what happens when you do that. 58,000 in Vietnam. You know, read uh, read McMaster's book, Dereliction of Duty. And they were committed. And, and Desert Storm was their crowning achievement, right? This is how it works when you give us the tools, you know, you give us a finite mission and we go and do it. Right? And they were incredibly proud of that. And then we reenact Vietnam over the course of the last 20 years. So, I mean, this is not a small deal. It's a big deal. Well, Yeah, let's let's not forget Memorial Day on Monday. And, uh, so let me know, ask we, you that. What are you doing on – what do you do for Memorial Day, Will? Uh, I'm actually driving to New York on Saturday. So, so I'll just be up at my parents' house. My parents uh, will put it out there. 60th anniversary next week. Wow. So, yeah. Well, congratulations yeah, but, to them. Uh, You'll be driving. Yeah. No, I'll be driving Saturday. So, but I'll be up there. So right. Memorial Day, though. Remember Memorial Day. We say in our family, because unfortunately we know where some of those guys are. Right. Um, Tim, plans for Memorial cool. Day weekend? Be down at the be down at the Federal Cemetery in Michigan with the Marine Corps League. Right. Have a little ceremony. Right. Jeff, I will be moving stuff to Vegas, much in the same way. Supplies were moved down the Ho Chi Minh Trail. I am, I am populating my new house in Vegas with stuff. So, yeah. bit by bit. Now you know I, the only thing I've learned, I've, uh, I've evolved is the people that I know who fly gold flags, you know, in their homes that I know personally. I make sure I, I reach out and say, "Hey, uh, just want you know I'm thinking about you and uh, and your and your loss and uh, um, and." Uh, yeah, that's uh, most of us. What stay busy, right, over the weekend, and yeah. uh, 
That's the idea. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, and 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 don't really utter the words "Happy Memorial Day" to yeah. anybody. But you know, I, I you know, whenever somebody does that, you know, I hear what Christ on on the cross, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. Um, yeah. They don't mean it. They don't understand it. And uh, if you do get a chance to educate them, it's not a bad thing. But most of the time, you don't. You just say, "See ya." All right, all right, boys. Thank you very much for the uh, for the visit today. All right, brother. All right, have a good one. See you guys later. All right, Kadafis. 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 That'll do it here on a uh, interesting, uh, interesting little program uh, here on Almerin Radio. Have a great day. And, uh, you know, this is Memorial Day weekend coming up since we're talking about it. And, uh, again, it is not thank you for your service weekend. We do that on other weekends. Um, It is a holiday that we devote to those that have given their lives. Uh, in the service of our nation. And I would tell you the way we do that is by honoring their families, if you know them, who pay the price every holiday, every day, um, that keeps this country free as people go and fight wars and never really believe that it's going to happen to me. Um, so I would tell you, by all means, reach out to them. Uh, tell them you're there in your thoughts and prayers or whatever you find is appropriate and for all of you who has who have children um you need to teach them about memorial day if you have grandchildren you have the same requirement is at some point you have to stop the weekend and you have to say a prayer as you get together to eat at your at your barbecue right at your picnic or whatever to remember those who have perished right in the service of you know one of the greatest nations that has ever been on the planet a nation that goes and fights wars for other countries and then gives them their country back go ahead and flip through history see see how many nations you find that do that so uh, just take a minute and make sure you teach your children and your grandchildren what this weekend is about and this weekend is about sacrifice and the other thought I would put in their head is this. That's something that I've told my kids for since they were little. This country didn't get to be the way it is because nobody gave a shit about it. And the dreams of those people in our national cemeteries was never to be in one. To have a chunk of marble sticking out of their forehead you know, at the age of 19, 20, 21, or whatever age. That was not the dream. That was not the plan. But when the nation needed them, they went. So what does that mean to you, young man, young woman? It means that you have an obligation to serve in your community in some capacity. You have to give a shit. And nobody's asking you to go fight America's wars, right? Unless you want to. But if you don't want to, you have an obligation to care about your community, to be involved and to make it a better place. And that's what makes the United States different. 
And you have to teach that, that they have a moral obligation to serve just like these people served and gave their lives. Okay? You, as an American, have to give a shit because that's how it works best. So with that said, uh, I'll be back tomorrow. I think the chef's going to be here. I'm not sure. i got to talk to him. And uh, hopefully he will because we'll talk about grilling and the summer officially begins as of this weekend. So uh, hopefully the chef will join me. But uh, on this Thursday, the 27th day of uh, May, Memorial Day Monday, right? Falls on the 31st. How about that? Uh, Have a great day. We'll be back tomorrow. I'm out.